several weeks ago, our college-age daughter walked into the kitchen and asked, what is Calvinism? What is Calvinism? Well, the first thing that I asked her was if she was actually talking to someone about Calvinism. Specifically, was it a topic that someone else had brought up? Was somebody asking her questions? If it was, I I stress the importance to her, the importance of having that person define their terms. What did they have in mind? What were they thinking about? How would they define that? Her question to me that evening opened the door to a good 10 to 15 minute conversation about some very deep and extremely powerful ideas. Are you familiar with this term Calvinism? Someone may ask, so how did you answer your daughter's question? How did you, what did you, did you give her a definition? Here's the short answer. Are you ready? Here's the short answer. Calvinism is a system of interconnected ideas. Christian, let's throw this next slide up if you would. Here we go. Calvinism is a system of interconnected ideas that attempts to explain from Scripture, from the Scriptures, the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to our redemption in Christ. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility when it comes to our redemption in Christ. One of my biggest problems with Calvinism is the label. The label. Calvinism was named after John Calvin, a French pastor who ministered in Switzerland during the Protestant Reformation, the 16th century. In spite of his flaws, and of course we all have them, he was one of the finest pastors-slash-teachers in all church history. But the label Calvinism can be misleading. Why is that? Because for some, it seems to communicate that Calvin invented the system. That these ideas did not exist before the 16th century. That is demonstrably false. I say that not because I have a list of other teachers from church history in mind, and there are many, but because I have one teacher in mind. Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John chapter 6. The Gospel of John chapter 6. The teacher I have in mind is the one that we find teaching here in this very chapter. It's Jesus So look with me at verses 35 through 46. That's the first chunk that we'll take this morning. Let me first read through the passage and then we can think together about some of the the key ideas revealed here by Jesus himself. Starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, to this crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me 
will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, probably Isaiah 54.13, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. Speaking, of course, about Himself there in that final statement. So how does this discussion about our redemption, about God's sovereignty, about man's responsibility begin? Well, it always begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. It always begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ and how people respond to that revelation. We find that revelation here in verse 35. I am the bread of life. That's our starting point. I am the bread of life. Now, notice this. Let me share a few points with you. Notice first that Jesus presents a contrast here between those who do not believe and those who come. Those who do not believe and those who come. He presents a contrast. Disbelief results in not coming to Christ. We heard this in the previous chapter, if you, if you recall, where Jesus was clear with some of the Jewish religious leaders. He said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's John chapter 5 verse 40. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Why didn't they come? Because they didn't believe. In this passage, Jesus is specifically addressing the crowd's unbelief. Verse 36. But I said to you, said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Remember this. Many of these people that Jesus is speaking to here had seen Jesus, not just a guy walking around, a Jewish man. They had seen Jesus miraculously multiply the fish and the loaves. They had seen that. And here they are wanting more food, wanting more signs, but they would not trust Him as the bread of life. 
they would not trust Him as the bread of life. That's what Jesus means when He said, you see me, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Now, in contrast to those people, there are those who come and they are described there in verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him. So it's important to see that contrast in the passage that we looked at. That contrast between those who do not believe and those who come. Second, second, those who come in faith are those given to Jesus by the Father. Those who come in faith are those given to Jesus by the Father. We cannot miss that key idea and that key word, given. Consider this. Look at verse 36 and think about how it's connected to verse 37. Look at 36. How is it connected to verse 37? Someone might ask, if so many in this crowd saw this miracle by Jesus but did not believe, then will anyone believe? Yes, absolutely. Verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. No doubt about that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those who come, come because they were first given. Do you see that? Those who come, come because they were first given. But what exactly does that mean? Kind of cryptic. How does God give someone to Jesus? Well, one aspect of that is right here in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws him. Now remember, to come to Jesus is just another way of talking about saving faith in Jesus. Those who come are exercising saving faith. Those who do not come, come because they do not believe. So, if that's true, that those that come coming to Jesus is another way of talking about saving faith in Jesus, what we see here is Jesus telling us that no one can have this saving faith unless God actively draws or leads her or him to Christ. Even the Old Testament prophets spoke about this, says Jesus. Such people are, verse 45, hearing and learning from God Himself because of His direct intervention. Why direct intervention? In order to direct them to Jesus. And if you drop down to verse 65 of this same chapter, same conversation a little later on, you'll see how Jesus expands on God's role in all this. What does he say? It says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So that's filling out the picture, isn't it? A little bit more of the Father's intervention. Now, number three, third, third point here. The third idea that's crystal clear in this passage is that those who come will be kept. Those who come will be kept both in and for eternal life. Those who come will be kept both in and for eternal life. Look again at the entirety of verse 37 with me. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So according to verse 39, God's will or His plan is that Jesus should lose nothing of all that the Father has given Him. You see that? Verse 39. He should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to Him. Listen, brothers and sisters, friends. Listen to this reassurance. If you come you will not be cast out. If you come, you will not be lost. No matter what happens, those who come to the Son because they were given by the Father will never be separated from the Son or the Father. Amazing. How beautiful. How long? How far does this promise extend? How long is it good for? Until the end. Do you see Jesus? Until the end. This is the most emphasized point in the entire chapter, in the entire discourse here. Three times, actually four times, Jesus declares that He will, verse 39, raise it. That is, raise this all, this whole group up on the last day. Verse 40, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, verse 44, I will raise him up on the last day. And it's repeated in verse 54. Talk about a clear emphasis. Jesus is driving that point home to us. Let me also do this. Let me also point out that there is an idea here, a truth woven through this chapter and throughout this book that helps us better understand the why, the why of what Jesus is revealing here about the work of God in our redemption. This particular idea is pretty clear in verse 36, as well as in verses 41 and 42. Do you see it? What explains that disbelief by the crowd in spite of the miracle? What explains the grumbling that is taking place about the identity of Jesus? Well, let's not forget why Jesus left this crowd of thousands in the first place. Why did he leave this crowd that we heard about in the opening verses of this chapter? He left because, verse 15, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. That's why he crossed back over the lake to Capernaum. The reason Jesus extricated himself from that situation might be best explained or ultimately explained by his spiritual assessment of human beings. And I mean all human beings. We heard that assessment back in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. John told us this, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. The reason he left those kingmakers. Why did he not entrust himself to them? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Why did this crowd doubt and grumble? 
because they are sinners. They were sinners because we are sinners. Why must God intervene and draw us to Christ? Because we are sinners. Why does Jesus need to reassure His listeners that redemption is secure and certain? Because we are sinners. Living, struggling, failing, pressing forward in a fallen world. What is assumed in this account is the very thing God confirmed in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Again, the three ideas that I highlighted earlier from the passage. These are the key ideas that make sense of everything that Jesus is saying here. Now, given their importance, let me see if I can again summarize these three ideas. Keeping in mind that truth about human sinfulness that undergirds this whole conversation. Here's a summary. Mercifully recognizing humanity's desperate condition, shackled by deception and disbelief, God granted that some should be called out of this spiritual death, given to Jesus, and securely nourished by the bread of life forever and ever. Mercifully recognizing humanity's desperate condition, shackled by deception and disbelief, God granted that some should be called out of this spiritual death, given to Jesus, and securely nourished by the bread of life forever and ever. You may recall how John has already touched on some of these ideas in the opening chapters of the Gospel. He spoke in chapter 1 of those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's how it came about, that birth. Not because anyone out there said, I confer upon you the title of child of God. Let me pour this oil on your head or do some special ritual. Right? It wasn't the will of man. It wasn't the will of the flesh. It wasn't me saying, oh, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a child of God. I'm choosing Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Nope. That's not what, that's not what he's saying here. Look what he's saying. Those who were born not of blood, not because of their genealogy, nor of the will of the flesh, not because of me, not, or, nor of the will of man, not because somebody said so, some religious figure, but of God. And Jesus goes on to speak about this new birth. He tells us something very similar in terms of the Spirit's intervention in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is. That analogy is perfectly applicable to everyone who is born of the Spirit. Not up to you. It's up to God. And Jesus will go on to speak about these same ideas even after our main passage this morning. For example, in chapter 10, He will speak of the sheep that the Father, chapter 10, verse 29, has given to the Son. 
the sheep for whom he will lay down his life as the good shepherd. In the prayer we find in chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus will describe how the Father has given, has given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom? To all, to all whom the Father has given, given me, given him. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. To be clear, this is not an idea we only find in the Gospel of John. It's found everywhere in God's Word. For example, both Jesus and Paul refer to this given group. Right? They have a name for this given group. Another title. They refer to them as the elect. The elect. Do a word search. Take a look at that word in the New Testament. But I want to make sure that we consider one more thing about this passage here, our main text this morning. Look with me at the final verses of our section. We're going, we're going to go past where we left off and grab a few more verses here. These are verses 47 through 51. John chapter 6, verses 47 through 51. Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and guess what (laughs) they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven he's got to be pointing at himself this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now next time we're going to unpack that and see the power and beauty of that saying there and what Jesus goes on to say. But here we cannot miss the call to faith that Jesus is issuing in these verses 47 through 51. He is appealing to His listeners here. Do you see that? Jesus' offer of eternal life is open to, verse 47, whoever. Verse 51, anyone. To verse 51, the world. Christ's arms are open wide. Whoever, anyone, the world. Why is it so important that we stress that point? Because God always draws the given through the gospel. God always draws the given through the gospel. That is His appointed means of working on those whom He has given to the Son. Drawing them in. God always draws the given through the gospel. The fact that God has given and draws only some to new life does not in any way keep Jesus from appealing to all. Please hear that. Please understand that. The fact that God has given and draws only some to new life does not in any way keep Jesus from appealing to all. When it comes to the gospel, we don't pick and choose, brothers and sisters. We proclaim. 
We proclaim. That is our calling. That is our mission. So, coming full circle, what does Calvinism teach? Another summary. I've got a lot of summary statements this morning. (laughs) Here's what Calvinism teaches. That God's response to our complete bondage and inability under sin was to choose some solely on the basis of His grace that they might be rescued. And that choice resulted and results in God powerfully calling these individuals to Himself, making them alive in Christ, and the very certain completion of the saving work He began. These are deep things, aren't they? Powerful things. Now, you'll see, you can see on the screen there that summary statement. I won't repeat it. I hope, though, it's been clear from a passage like John chapter 6 that none of this was invented by either John Calvin or his students. <laughs> no, Calvin was simply articulating truths Jesus himself taught and the apostles after him and in his name. So if these theological ideas are truly biblical ideas, maybe people should talk less about Calvinism and more about maybe something like givenism. 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 Look at this definition. Givenism. A profound and beautiful set of biblical ideas centered on the reality that you, believer, were given in amazing grace by God the Father to God the Son that the Son might perfectly secure your eternal redemption and restoration. Isn't that beautiful? A profound and beautiful set of biblical ideas centered on the reality that you, believer, brother, sister, were given an amazing grace by God the Father to God the Son that the Son might perfectly secure your eternal redemption and restoration. When did the Father give you to the Son? Well, the New Testament tells us that not only did God know you before you were created. Take a look at these verses. Romans 8.29, those whom He foreknew. Not only did He know you, but that He, Ephesians 1.4, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That He, Ephesians 1.5, predestined. He, he planned your destiny. He determined your destiny in advance. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christ, according to the purpose of His will. That's the will Jesus spoke about accomplishing in John chapter 6. The fact that we have been predestined through Jesus is what it means that we are given by the Father to the Son. Now, think with me about why Jesus revealed such things to His listeners. Pretty heavy conversation for walking around Capernaum. Actually, I think this at the end of the chapter tells us this was taking place in the synagogue in Capernaum. So somehow they were probably walking and talking and eventually the whole thing ended up in the synagogue where Jesus was speaking. Why is he talking about these 
profound ideas with his original listeners. Well, let me emphasize, look at the emphasis here. Why, it, why emphasize what he's emphasizing here in this main passage from John chapter 6? I believe the main reason is reassurance. That fits the context. The main reason is reassurance. Jesus is expanding on the reassurance he offered when he said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Never. Ever. How can Jesus say that with such certainty that those who come shall never thirst? Because both the Father and Son would most certainly accomplish the rescue mission ordained in eternity past. It would be done. It would be accomplished. So with all of this in mind, brothers and sisters, friends, with all of this in mind, I'd like to share with you very briefly three encouragements in light of the beautiful biblical truths of givenism. Are you ready? The first encouragement. You can rest in the reassurance that Christ has saved, is saving, and will save you even from yourself. You can rest in the reassurance that Christ has saved, is saving, and will save you even from yourself. It is so easy, isn't it, to slip into that mindset in which we base our spiritual reassurance on our feelings or our track record or some other thing rather than on the finished work of Jesus. So we need to remember and and remind each other of the fact that when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. He was talking about your past, present, and future. Your past, present, and future. We need to rest like this, don't we? We need to rest in this very way. Second, God's sovereign grace in Christ should embolden us to share Christ knowing that He will surely work to call His own. God's sovereign grace in Christ should embolden us to share Christ, knowing that He will surely work to call His own. It's critical that we acknowledge that resting in reassurance does not mean spiritual inactivity. You resting in reassurance does not lead to spiritual inactivity. (laughs) In fact, quite the opposite. It inspires us. It drives us forward to serve the one who did this on our behalf, who showed us such grace, to live for Him. When we truly understand how God works to give life to a soul, we should be inspired to share the gospel, no matter the odds we face, no matter the opposition we encounter, that we share the gospel. Because it's not up to me to persuade somebody, to argue someone into the kingdom. It's not up to me to cast the judgment and say, no, 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 that person's way too far gone. No, 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 no. That person has no interest in spiritual things. I I, I can never see that person actually serving Christ with joy. 
That is not our call, brothers and sisters. Because we know the God who calls men and women to Himself. Even the vilest of sinners. Even the chief of sinners. And Paul was humble enough to say, I am that person. And each of us, because we know ourselves better than anyone else, should also be able to make that confession. I am the chief of sinners. And yet God had mercy on me. If He can do that with you, He can do that with anyone. And if He's worked to secure lives from eternity past, you can be sure that as we share Christ with others, God will work through that because He draws the given through the gospel. Right? He draws the given through the gospel. And so He calls you, brother, He calls you, sister, to be used in that drawing work by sharing the good news of Jesus. Yes, loving loving kindness, acts of service can be used by God, but they will never ever replace speaking the word of Christ. People have to hear the message of Christ to be saved. Doesn't get transferred by osmosis because you're a really great guy. We look for opportunities to share about our faith with others as God opens those doors. Number three, as an encouragement in light of givenism, because God alone grants and gives, because He convicts, converts, and completes His saving work in us, He alone gets the glory. It's so important to remember that the only reason you came to Christ is because it was granted to you by the Father. That's the only reason. Because you were then drawn. Similarly and ultimately, the only reason you will be raised up in the end is because Jesus Christ will never let you go. He's not losing even one. When He said it is finished, it's finished. (laughs) Yeah, it has to be worked out in real time and space, but you can believe it. It is finished. It's done. And so in light of this, we cry out with all creation in the words of Revelation 5.13 to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Brother, sister, be humbled and reassured and stirred to worship in light of the fact that you were given. You were given. Friends, if you aren't sure where you stand with God, don't focus on whether you've been given. Consider instead if you're being drawn. Even now, are you being drawn? Consider what God is doing in your heart through the truth about Christ, through the truth about your desperate need, the truth about what He accomplished that you could never could, that He alone did on your behalf. Come to Christ in faith. Come eat of the bread of life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.